Open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, as we'll be reading the last part of this chapter, verses 12 through 19. Just a reminder to you that uh, we hold a very high view of Scripture in our congregation here and in our denomination. Uh, we are more and more standing out uh, as a minority because of that. And in one way, that's a good thing. It's good in the sense that we are still standing firm on the inspiration and authority of all 66 books that constitute the scriptures of, in our Bibles. Uh, but on the other hand, we have to be sure that uh, we live by them and that we are being bright, shining lights in this dark, spiritually dark world. Peter is writing to believers in Christ who are seeking to do that, to uphold uh, the truth of God, the gospel of Christ in a world that is worshiping other gods based always on themselves. You know, themselves come first and God maybe, if he's there at all, he's down the list somewhere in their order of priorities. Let that not be so, of course, for us. And we learn more about how to do that right here. Look at uh, verse 12, as I will read through the end of the chapter, 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. The Bible was never intended for people who live in a perfect world. That may sound a little strong, but it's true because we live in an imperfect world. Now, the perfect world is coming. It's coming later. While this world and the things that we encounter in our lives um, are very trying and difficult for us, the Bible provides the message that will lead its adherence to a perfect world. 
We are bound for the promised land, but we are still here as pilgrims making our way there. If we're trusting in Christ, then we know that all of that is secure and God is going to bring to perfection all in whom he has begun his gracious work through the, through the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I as followers of Jesus are works in progress, aren't we? And so the Bible is written for living in the real world. This letter has been, in this letter we have been examining, we found that it was written by a man who knew firsthand what it was to fail, what it was to hurt, what it was to be persecuted, and would shortly, he would shortly know what it was to even suffer a cruel and unjust death, all because he confessed that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. These readers were being persecuted by the, for the reason that they were followers of Christ. So when we talk about trials and sufferings, as Peter is doing in this letter, it's primarily addressing specifically the trials that we encounter because we are seeking to be faithful to Christ in our life and in our witness. And we are beginning to feel the effects of that bit by bit increasingly in our culture today. And that's the very same thing that was happening in the first century with those first Christians. So with that in mind, notice how Peter deals with this section here because he talks about these trials that come to us because of our faith. And this is the last time he's going to mention specifically the trials that his readers were enduring. You may remember he's been doing that repeatedly. He's talking about that through this book. And now he's sort of bringing it to a, a summary before he hits a couple of final things that he wants to uh, bring to the reader's attention in chapter 5. So keep that in mind. He's building up really to, in this theme of suffering for your faith, to this section. I want you to look at this in four ways. And each of these ways begins with the word that starts with EX. So maybe that'll help you to hang your hat on that and be able to, to follow along Peter's thought here. First thing is expect trials to come. Expect trials to come. In verse 12, Peter says, and notice he addresses them, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when somebody responds to our effort to mention uh, the power of Christ in the gospel in our conversation don't be surprised if somebody says, that's a bunch of baloney. Why do you believe that old book? You should know better than that. You went to college. Yeah, right. That's probably where they lost their faith. <laughs> well, we shouldn't be surprised when we have that kind of situation. But let's face it, we are surprised sometimes. And they were too. And that's why Peter's saying this. Don't be surprised when you suffer for your faith in any form it may take. Maybe it's just a, you know, a, a rolling of the eyes. 
when you say something about, well, the Bible teaches us that men should be married to women. And you find out that your neighbor that you're conversing with begins, you know, the emoji eye roll, that's them. We forget, though, that trials are necessary. And he tells us that there in that verse. He talks about a fiery ordeal that they're going through. And it's interesting that he uses that word fiery. Uh, in the commentators that I consulted when I was preparing this, I was surprised that none of them really paid much attention to the fact that, that Rome was burning about the time that uh, they, that this was written. Now maybe, it, I don't know exactly if, if Nero, and, and we, nobody knows what started that fire in Rome, but we know that uh, there's an old saying that Nero played his fiddle while Rome was burning. Maybe that happened, we don't know for sure. At least I don't. And while that was, that would have been a fitting reference for him to say they're fiery trials. And we use that phrase, don't we? He's been tried by fire. Fiery ordeal. God brings those fiery trials into our lives. Do not look at them as some uh, exception to the way God does things. Oh no, God's supposed, he's love, he's supposed to bless us. Yes, he's going to bless us. Peter uses that word here again in this letter. He's going to bless us, but he works through trying us, testing us to refine us as fire is used to refine, refine gold. You may remember in chapter one, he mentions that. He talks about the trials that we experience and says that we are going to go through them and be refined and purified as gold. Uh, that's, called, uh, that's back in chapter one, <clears throat> early on in the chapter. He says in verse six, in this you rejoice, talking about their faith uh, being tested. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have to remember that when we are going through trials, God is at work in us through those trials and during those trials. Therefore our testing, therefore our purifying. And so he says, don't be surprised at this fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I've learned that uh, forest fires have a good beneficial purpose. I'm not advocating that you go out and start one, please don't do that. But just, you know, natural events can cause huge forest fires. Lightning strikes a dry area and things like that. And a, a volcano, where I remember Mount St. Helens in what, 1980 or whatever it was, uh, erupted and, and so many, so much of the forest down that mountainside and in that area uh, were consumed by the fire and nothing was, virtually nothing was left standing. All you could see really was ash. But before a year was out, Little green stuff started coming up through the ash. 
It was a renewing of the forest. It was a purging of the forest because forests tend to overgrow if uh, something doesn't happen. And then you have that refreshed, renewed uh, set of life uh, in plants and, and trees and, and everything else that goes along with it. That's a great illustration, I think, of how God is working in us. He may bring us almost to the point of ashes. We're still living. We may have lost virtually everything in our lives. And yet God will use that so our faith will grow in our trust in the Lord. And we will grow in our relationship with the Lord. And good will come from it, difficult as it was. There's an old Bulgarian proverb that says God promises a safe landing, but never a calm passage. God promises a safe landing, but not a calm passage. See, that's where we are. We're in the passage part. Think again of flying in a plane and you encounter a lot of turbulence. You begin to wonder what's going to happen. You become afraid. People in the plane start screaming and, and uh, you know, thinking that the plane's going to go down. It's just bouncing all over. I've never had this experience before. It's never been this bad. Or as some people have seen, uh, one of the engines flames out. You know, and they see fire coming out of the engine and they don't fully understand what that means. Uh, it wasn't a, a calm passage. And uh, virtually 99% of the time, of course, those planes make it safely. So we, it, we just uh, have those times. But ultimately, God, if we know Christ, we are secure in him. And the worst thing that can happen to us, well, I say this a lot, the worst thing that can happen to us in our lives is that we die. And what happens when we die? We go to glory where it's perfect. We don't need to fear our sufferings. We don't need to fear death itself. We suffer without having to think that all is lost in the midst of our sufferings, which is a great test of our faith in itself. Expect trials to come. Secondly, exult when trials come. Exult, E-X-U-L-T. That means praise. We exult, we praise when trials do come. Verses 13 and 14 speak of that. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, that doesn't mean rejoice in the trial itself, as he's making that clear here. It wouldn't be much of a trial if you could rejoice in the midst of it and saying, I sure am enjoying losing everything in my financial portfolio. And you go around with slapping on this big grin as if everything was great and that you're, you've risen above that and it doesn't bother you at all. No, he's talking about that deeper rejoicing. I can rejoice and it can show in genuine joy in your life, of course, but it's the rejoicing in, in the fact that, hey, this is, this is God 
exactly what God said, that this kind of stuff's going to happen. But God's going to take care of me because I'm his. Rejoice and not in the trial itself. We need to be genuine, but we don't we need to be artificial in our rejoicing. Peter talks a lot in this book about rejoicing. No, and so you, no matter what situation you're in, you can rejoice because you know that God's got you in his hands. And he's going to use that, that trial for constructive purposes in your life and maybe spilling over to be a means of blessing to the lives of those around you. You share in Christ's sufferings. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't suffer enough on the cross and you've got to add your part. It means that because Jesus suffered and eventually overcame that through his death and resurrection, you are joined to him, united to him, so that everything that happened to Jesus in terms of our redemption is being applied to us. Paul talked about in, in Philippians 3 that uh, he, when he talked about his new life in Christ, that he, he counted everything in his past as, as dung. And he said, what he treasures and values the most is Christ. And he said that, that he shares in the sufferings of Christ now. In Acts chapter 3, uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the disciples had been put in jail because they had been preaching Christ. Then they were uh, let out of jail and they were warned, don't do that anymore or something worse will happen to you. Well, they went away, verse 41 says, rejoicing that they had been able to suffer for Christ and his sake. They knew that something spiritually powerful was happening because it, their faith was getting the attention of those who did not share that faith, even in a negative way. The Philippian jailer, of course, later in the book of Acts, was converted. Uh, you know, if you're not sure where you stand with the Lord and, and you're in charge of a jail and an earthquake comes and breaks the jail open, you might start thinking more seriously about the Lord. <laughs> I don't think I would. So we exalt, we rejoice, we exult when these trials come because of the value of these trials. The Bible tells us about the value of them in those two verses. We share in Christ's sufferings and we also will be sharing in Christ's glory. He really says here, be overjoyed. He says in, in uh, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad. It's a, a double emphasis here. Not just rejoice, but rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When is God's glory going to be revealed? In its fullest. When Christ comes back. So we link our present sufferings for our faith with where the end of that suffering is going to lead us. Glory. And Paul says in Romans 8 that the sufferings we, we encounter right now aren't worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. To which I want to say glory. <laughs> Peter says you're blessed in verse 14. 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a great Baptist pastor in the 1800s, said, you begin to reign, R-E-I-G-N, you begin to reign the moment you begin to suffer well. See, Peter's talking about how to suffer well. How to suffer well. Thirdly, exalt God as trials come. Exalt God as trials come. He talks here about suffering because you are a Christian in verses 15 through 18. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, you notice that list. He's talking about the more obvious things to the less obvious things. You know, what's a terrible thing somebody could do? The kind of things that are going on all the time in our society right now. Murders. In my uh, graduating class reunion this weekend, some of us were talking about how different things are in our world today versus 1968 <laughs> when we were seniors in high school. And one of those things was crime or the lack of it. I mean, yeah, there were people who would steal and we had one rather notorious murder uh, during that time and one of our classmates' mothers was killed, murdered. And that just shocked everybody because that never happens. And now bullets are flying everywhere. But anyway, don't be, don't talk about, uh, well, uh, yeah, I murdered somebody, but I just don't think God is right to make me suffer. Not thinking very clearly there. And you say, okay, well, I'm off the hook. I'm not a murderer. Well, keep reading that little short list there. Or a thief, most of us have stolen in one way or another. Or an evildoer, that's a pretty broad term, doing evil, breaking the commandments. And then he really starts stepping on toes, doesn't he? Or a meddler, you know, a busybody, somebody that's too nosy and wants to dig into other people's business where they shouldn't be digging. So what he's saying is any kind of sin. If you're doing something wrong and you are suffering uh, when that's happening, don't be surprised at that. But that's not what he's talking about. And so he says in verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, meaning someone who suffers because they're living a Christian life. You know, there's only three times in the New Testament where the word Christian is used. That was a beginning to become the, the term to use to apply to those who were believing in Jesus Christ and had believed the gospel. If you suffer as a Christian, he says, let him not be ashamed. But instead, he says, let him glorify God in that name. The name of Christian. Glorify God. I almost want to say be proud of that fact in the holy sense of that term. Yes, I'm a Christian. Be bold. Take a stand. Take a stand for Christ. Now, in saying all of that, in exalting God, we suffer because we are Christians. 
And he says, in contrast to that, in verse 17, something is a little puzzling. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? When he says it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, that might sound a little strange because it may seem like we, we, we're not supposed to, to be worried about the judgment. And why would God want to judge Christians and, and the church? What he's saying is that we need to be proper and, and holy in ourselves. And if we're not, we're not perfect. We still need to grow and become more and more holy. And God uses trials to bring us through that process of helping us become more holy. It's one of the fruits of going through trials. And so in that sense, that's where God begins judging us in the sense that he is testing us and trying us and refining us and purifying us and making us more like Jesus through our trials for Christ. But one thing that really has always stood out to me, I remember this happening when I was way back in, in school days in seminary, in verse uh, 17, if it begins with us, God's judgment purifying, if it begins with us, because he's going to do good from it, what will be, <clears throat> what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? <clears throat> if God's going to purify Christians through trials, what's it going to be like for those who aren't Christians? In other words, God takes sin seriously for believers, but they are covered in the blood of Christ. What's going to happen then to those who don't believe? And notice how Paul put, I mean, Peter puts it here. Those who do not obey the gospel of Christ. You realize that if you don't believe in the gospel of Christ, you're not neutral. You're disobedient. You are not doing what God commands. God commands all men everywhere to repent and put their trust and hope in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. It's a matter of obedience or disobedience. <clears throat> if you have put your trust in Christ and believed in the gospel message, then you are obeying the gospel and seeking to live it out in your life. But if you haven't put your hope in Christ, you are disobeying God just by your failure to believe in that gospel. That's an awesome thing to think about. But Peter says, when you suffer, Christians, you don't have to be ashamed. That's a, a rather fascinating term to use for, for Peter. You remember there was a time when Peter was ashamed. He was ashamed to be identified with Christ when three times after Jesus was arrested, he denied Jesus. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? No, I don't have anything to do with him. Three times. Jesus told him that was going to happen before the rooster crowed. You're going to deny me three times. And that's exactly what happened. And Peter, one of the gospels tells us, went out and wept bitterly. He was ashamed and now he's ashamed of being ashamed of Christ. We can experience that too. But we need to 
go the right route so that we don't, uh, we aren't ashamed of Christ. We're boldly saying, I'm so glad and I rejoice in the fact that Jesus has saved me. Jesus has conquered my sin. I am justified. I'm being sanctified. I'm going to be glorified all because of the sovereign grace of God. And for some reason, by his grace, not because of me or what I've been or, or haven't been, but because he simply loved me. He just simply loved me. And he's going to love us forever. Malachi 3 talks about these things in the same terms. I'm not going to take the time. You might want to look at that later. Talks about the purifying of God's house. But there's no condemnation, only rest for those who trust in the Lord, which is what Peter says here. The rest that he gives us. <clears throat> at the end of verse 14, just to take a peek back there. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's a wonderful thought there. The spirit of glory, Christ, rests upon you. Notice lastly, exercise faith as trials come. Exercise faith as trials come. This is really sort of a, a, a mini course on suffering. The basic truths that we find throughout Scripture, Peter's got it compressed here in this uh, summary. Exercise faith, and that's what verse 19 says. It's, notice that he's leading to a conclusion. Therefore, in the light of everything he's been saying here about suffering, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Trusting God is a perpetual duty. You don't just trust God when you become a Christian. You keep trusting God and you learn to trust God even more when he tests your faith. The word here, I think it's very important. The word in trust could also be translated commit. Commit your souls, commit your whole self to a faithful creator. Commit was used, the word commit was used in Greek culture to, to uh, make deposits. If you, uh, in those days they didn't have banks, but they would sometimes take money that they had and give it to a neighbor if they needed to and, and commit that money to that neighbor to, to guard it, so to speak, to take care of it, to protect it while the other person's away. And that's sort of what we do. We are entrusting our souls to Jesus, even though we don't know what's coming up and how things are going to work out and all those things. We're entrusting ourselves. We have to do it over and over again in fresh ways. Trusting God is no gamble, though. Jesus, uh, Peter says that we have a faithful creator. He will faithfully provide for us direct us, use us, God's faithfulness. I would, <clears throat> you might want to think about Daniel's friends. Uh, look that up later in Daniel 3 and, and how the friends uh, were not worried about being thrown into the fiery furnace, fiery furnace, because they were trusting in the Lord. And the king found that out 
uh, and was, of course, amazed when he looked into the fire and saw those three friends of Daniel not being consumed. Plus, there was a fourth person that was a godlike figure that the king saw in there. It's a great story. Most folks think that that was the pre-incarnate Christ, the faithful creator taking care, protecting his loved ones, which is what he's doing for us. We need to do the next thing. There's a Saxon legend inscribed in a, uh, on a parsonage on the coast of England that says, do the next thing. Lord, what do you want me to do? How am I going to solve this problem? Just do the next thing. Trust me and keep doing what you're supposed to do. You know, don't go crawl in a corner somewhere and, and uh, assume a fetal position and become virtually useless to everybody around you. I've been there. I know what that's like, by the way. So what Peter's saying is what he heard Jesus say. Blessed are those who persecute you. Say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. That's exactly what Peter is saying here. What will you do when your next trial erupts in a threatening blaze around you? Maybe you're experiencing it right now. Follow Peter's words. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are faithful. Lord, when we are totally lost and not knowing what's going on in the trials that we are experiencing, it, it's, it's like in our souls, it's like being caught in a burning house. How will we survive? How can we stay faithful? How can we be strong enough to speak the truth in love, to not deny Christ when we are tempted to do so? Help us to grow in our faith. Help us to glorify you in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.